Hi, welcome to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. My name is Jillian, and we are so glad you're joining us. Today, Char Broderson continues through our series, Life in His Name, with a message entitled, Faithful Witness in the Face of the World's Hatred. In the past, how have you responded to people when they disagree with you? In today's message, we reflect on the times when Christians have written off the world and its response to them is hatred. But have you ever noticed that the message of God is often rejected because our methods, meaning Christ followers, don't align with the way of Jesus? Ask yourself this, how is your tone and posture when you live your life out for Jesus? Can people find safety and light in you? I know this can raise a gut reaction to defend the gospel, but what does it look like to sit in the tension of loving others while still believing what you believe? God doesn't need us to defend him. He needs you to love others. We believe that if the church were to faithfully take up the way of Jesus in all places and interactions, we would actually see many people drawn to Jesus and experience life in his name. Now that is great news. Grab your Bible, your writing utensils and notebooks and jot down all the things that stand out to you today. We chose to teach through John's gospel and to look at it through this lens of life in his name. And this purpose statement or this kind of filter through which we want to read and study the Gospel of John comes from John's own words in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. I'll read it for us. John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, I've said it many times before, but I'll say it again. This is not an exhaustive biography of the life and works of Jesus that John has recorded for us, but John has handpicked and curated certain moments in the story and the life of Jesus, and he has put them together in such a way that the reader, the student of God's word, might receive and offer again and again to have life in the name of Jesus. See, John connects what we believe, what we trust in, what we center our lives around to the quality of life that we experience. And John's gospel offers not just those who are far from God, not just those who have never experienced Jesus before, but disciples again and again and again, this offer to recenter our lives around Jesus in order that we might experience life in his name. And so this gives us the opportunity to ask ourselves regularly, am I really living? Am I experiencing the life that Jesus purchased for me to experience? Am I experiencing a kind of love, hope, a peace that I can commend to others. Do I have life in Jesus' name? Now, as we come back to the 15th chapter, I think it's really helpful for us to recap where we've been. So we're in the middle of what is commonly called the upper room discourse, and it's Jesus' last major teaching that we have recorded, and it's specifically given to his disciples on the night of his betrayal 
and of his arrest. And Jesus has previously told the disciples of his going away. I am going away and you cannot follow me. I am going to the Father. Jesus is speaking of the completion of his mission through the cross, through resurrection, back to the Father, the completion of his mission to bring life to the world. And Jesus has previously promised the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in his absence who will remind disciples of Jesus' ways, remind disciples of Jesus' words, remind disciples of Jesus' works, and will lead them in the way of Jesus, in the truth of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, in order that Jesus' mission to the world will continue through his people. Now, Jesus' teaching continues, but its focus changes now from the abiding spirit with disciples to abiding disciples in Jesus the vine. It changes from language of works that disciples will do in Jesus' name to language of fruit that is produced in the life of disciples. This section of John really is such a vital passage to understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and how that disciple work, discipleship works itself out. According to John chapter 15, the lifelong task of a disciple is not the mission of Jesus. The lifelong task of a disciple is their relationship and discipleship to Jesus. I want to say that one more time. The lifelong task of a disciple, of a follower of Jesus, is not the mission of Jesus. The lifelong task of the disciple is discipleship to Jesus, to abide in him. Everything else we do flows from that identity and from that relationship See, the truth is, is that God is much more concerned that we be with him, that we walk in deep love, friendship, and intimacy with him, and become more like him than what we do or accomplish for him. And although there are questions of our giftings that God has given us, the opportunities that we have, the mission to take the gospel to the ends of the world, to do signs and works and speak and act in such a way that honors Jesus. Questions like, God, what do you want to do through me and my gifting and talents? That will ultimately come from what God is doing in you and how that work is actually being cultivated. And that's what Jesus is teaching is all about. It's about abiding in Jesus the vine. So Jesus starts out here, John chapter 15, verse 1, saying, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. So what does this actually mean? Well, the Old Testament is filled with this imagery of a vineyard. And Israel, as many of us know, was an agrarian culture of farmers and shepherds. And God would often speak to them in just those terms of life and culture around them. Now, because of this agrarian culture, life or human flourishing was often pictured 
as a fruitful vineyard bearing amazing grapes that produced amazing wine. This is imagery that the scripture uses again and again, which is why God's people are often seen as God's vineyard, planted and cultured for good fruit, fruitfulness, for flourishing, to experience joy and peace, blessing and human wholeness. Israel, as many of us know, was God's chosen people to know him and be the object of his love and rule in order to show the nations what the good life was under the love and reign of Yahweh. That was the intention of Israel. It even says this in the in the Torah, it says that the nations will look at Israel and say, there is like no other nation under earth like Israel who has such wise decrees and has a God so near to them. They were to be this attractional people that stood out, light to the nations, salt that preserved the earth. And yet, if we know the story of Israel, we know that they never entered into this identity and calling that Yahweh had intended for them. In fact, the prophet Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 5. He says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a watchtower at it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Then it goes on to say in verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines that he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Notice that the vine was to produce Good fruit, justice, and righteousness or right doing, and instead it produced wild or bad fruit, bloodshed, and an outcry, lamentation, and grieving. It was intended for the good life, for flourishing, but instead it produced evil and injustice. The vineyard that the Lord had planted, that he cultivated, had done the exact opposite of what it was intended to do, to bring forth good fruit and blessing to the world. Now, Jesus picks up this imagery here, and he tells his disciples that he himself is the true vine. See, Jesus is the new and final faithful Israel. Have you ever noticed how many times Israel itself will be referred to as the servant of Yahweh? It almost looks like it's a singular identity. Well, this is exactly intentional by the prophetic writers because this is preparing the way not for the nation itself, but for the Messiah that he himself would come and be what Israel was always intended to be, God's chosen true vine that brings forth good fruits, the good, blessed, flourishing life. 
This is what it means that Jesus is the true vine. That he is first and foremost the one who does what Israel could never do, produces good fruit, righteousness, justice, goodness to God. He is also a sign to the nations of the goodness of God. But not only that, Jesus himself, as Jesus the man, is a picture of the good life. The good life that humans seek, every human seeks and longs for, can only be had in deep connection with Jesus. And so here, once again, as John has done many times in his gospel, he presents Jesus as the object of humanity's desire, longing, and fulfillment. That only through Jesus can we experience the goal for which human beings were intended, which is human wholeness, flourishing, or what the Gospel of John calls life in his name. Now, since Jesus is the true vine, those who want to experience this life must abide in him. Now, Abide in me is the statement that Jesus makes. And this isn't the first time that Jesus has spoken this word of abiding or making our home in him. That offer has come up again and again in John's gospel. But the idea of abiding is really of being at home. It's being settled into, at peace, and at rest in Jesus. To abide practically means that we keep up a habit of constant, close connection with him. To be always leaning on Jesus, resting in Jesus, making Jesus our source of life and strength, inviting Jesus to be our daily companion in all that we do, all that we face. So Jesus is saying to each and every one of his disciples, live in me, center your life around me, make your home in me, or for this metaphor, plant your life in the midst of mine. Remember, Jesus has already promised his abiding presence through the Spirit, but now Jesus is asking disciples for their abiding presence with him. I think this is really important for us to stop for a moment and just think about this. Sometimes we put all the emphasis on, okay, the Spirit will abide with me as a disciple of Jesus. But there's another side to that same coin. Jesus says, yes, my Spirit will abide in you and you abide in me. It's a two-way street. See, um, we must make that effort ourselves to abide in Jesus. Abiding in Jesus is truly a matter of utmost importance. It's a matter of life and death. Because either you are abiding in him, or as we have seen again and again in this gospel, you are abiding somewhere else. You are drawing your sense of identity, purpose, strength, and fulfillment from someone or somewhere else, and that someone or somewhere is leading you to an end.
either further into death now and forever or further into life, flourishing life in his name. You know, I remember years ago when I was pastoring up in Santa Rosa, there was a young woman in our church who told me that she had grown up in a Christian home she had gone to church fairly consistently and assumed that she was a follower of Jesus. And at one point, she just hit this radical crisis in her life. And, you know, it just really just turned her whole world upside down. And she told me, I went to kind of fall back on my faith. And what I found was there was no faith to fall back on. There was no personal relationship with Jesus at all. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, listen to what he says. He says, silence is frightening because it strips us as nothing else does, throwing us on the stark realities of our life. It reminds us of death, which will cut us off from this world and leave only us and God. And in the quiet, what if there turns out to be very little between us and God? What a haunting thought that we can be Christian, that we can go to church, that we can assume that we're a Jesus follower, and yet when we go to reach for Jesus, there's nothing there. There's no presence, there's no power, there's no comfort because we have failed to cultivate this abiding in Christ, cultivating this friendship with Jesus. And this might be true of some of you here today. You're only one crisis away from losing faith because there is no real connection to Jesus to speak of. But the invitation to anyone, and especially to those who call themselves disciples, is to abide with Jesus. As disciples, we must abide. But the question, I think, is, Okay, but how do we abide? Well, Jesus tells us. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now just stay right there. Remain in my love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Stay right there. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed this in my life. My prayer life has tended to be um, me apologizing to God. Um, hey, God, um, you know, you're holy and good and true. And I, you know, I'm sorry that I have not read my Bible as consistently as I should have. I'm sorry that we don't talk as consistently as we should. And I just always am talking about my failures or I'm only talking about my needs. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Right? We're going to God on an emotional basis rather than cultivating a relational foundation with God. Just simply enjoying being with Him. As a father has loved me, so have I loved you. Church, stay right there. I would encourage you in your time of reading Scripture, in your time of prayer, to just take a few minutes to just sit in the love of Jesus. Allow it to marinate, to speak deeply to 
your heart, to the soul, to the core of who you are. I've shared with you guys before, but something I do regularly is I remind myself of those words spoken over Jesus. You are mine, I love you, and I am pleased for you. Because Jesus shares this identity with all who are his. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Stay right there. Spend time right there. Put deep roots down right there in the love of Jesus. The particular way in which Jesus is calling us to abide in him is by being at home, being comfortable in his love without denial, without self-deprecation, without excuses to receive the deep, deep love of Jesus, to own it, to make it your own. Now, if you've been through a teaching of this passage of the Gospel of John before, you might have heard the pastor or teacher say something like this. Abiding, you'll never hear a vineyard or fruit tree groaning or straining to bear fruit, implying that all Christians have to do is simply be and they will bear fruit. This is true. Trees do not make noises. Thank you, pastor teacher. I think that this is to take the metaphor too far, and I think it has been unhelpful in one sense because it leaves us thinking that we don't have to do anything but I actually believe Jesus is calling us to the rigorous task of mentally, emotionally, physically maintaining this abiding in his love. How many of us have that shadow self when we think about the love of Jesus? And we think about, oh yeah, well, that, I believe that that's true for Dan. I believe that's true for Cheryl. I believe that that's true for John. But for me... I don't know about that. We have this self-deprecating. We have this judgmental side that no one else knows about, only we see and hear, that will seek to keep us out of the love of Jesus. Will seek to keep us out of that identity in Christ. I believe that Jesus is actually calling us to the rigorous task of mentally, emotionally, physically maintaining this abiding in his love. You know, this is just like any healthy relationship. There are habits and disciplines we must choose, develop, and maintain in order to stay in step with and deeply connected to another person. So then abide in me would mean something like continue in daily personal relationship with Jesus. Characterized by trusting in him. Ongoing conversation with him. Obedience to him. To discipline ourselves for these things. Or just to put it very simply, Make time to be with Jesus. Make time to simply be with Jesus. Well, how do we do that? Here's what it's looked like for me in my life, just immersing myself in the story of Jesus. 
We talked about this when we did our teaching about what it means to be a disciple. But a disciple, you know, followed their teacher, would observe them and just their words, their actions, their posture, their hand gestures, all of this, just taking in who their teacher was in order to assimilate them. This is what it means to be with Jesus, just to immerse yourself in the story of the Gospels, to take Jesus in again and again and again, his words, his ways, and his works, to practice time alone with him, talking to him as a dear friend, just the things that are on your heart, the things that you're struggling with, the things that you fear, the things that you desire, what brings you joy. Talking to him as a friend and confident, a counselor and a guide who journeys with you along the way of life. And as I said a moment ago, we know, you and I know, how many things try to come between us and that goal. There's the shadow self, there's the self-deprecating, judgmental self. But there's always simply the busyness of life. How many of us, right, sit down, you want to do five minutes of prayer and what goes on? Oh my gosh, I got to call Jerry back. I totally forgot that I need to do laundry today. Man, what was that show I wanted to watch that Jordan was telling me about? I, uh, and all of a sudden you're like, I'm lost. You know, I was going to pray. I was going to spend time with Jesus. And I'm like, I'm like the person that goes out to lunch with my friend and I'm just on my phone the whole time. What am I doing? And so we have to fight for this. We have to discipline ourselves for this. We've got to put that phone away. We need to put those distractions away. Now, as weird as it might sound, you know the one place that every single person is alone? Where is it, people? Shower, yeah, yeah, shower, bathroom, right? Usually you don't shower or go to the bathroom with another person or with your phone and these things. Of course, these days, you know, with our technology, now you can. What a wonderful place to just connect with Jesus. No distractions, potentially. Just to be alone with them, just to talk with them. Cultivate those times. The point is not to necessarily create more to do in your life, but to invite Jesus into your life. I really think what Jesus is saying to us, or his invitation to us is safeguard your relationship with me so that you and I continue to be deep, intimate friends. I think that this is what this passage is all about. No longer do I call you servants. You know, there's a lot of Christians that think of ourselves only in those terms of our relationship to God. Well, I'm just an unprofitable servant. No, Jesus says, I call you friend. He calls us friend, and he invites us into deep, intimate friendship with him. This is the most incredible gift given to humans, to be called the friend of God, to have him as our confidant, our guide, our counselor, our comforter, our joy, to have him as our friend.
you know, something that I've been doing, and honestly, this is a discipline. How many of you guys sleep with your phone right next to your bed, right? Convenient, isn't it? There's a wall plug right there. I plug it right in. I go to sleep. There's an alarm on it. It's very convenient. Something that I've had to discipline myself to do is to not turn off my alarm and immediately go to Twitter, the news, my email, because I immediately jump into to do or the news that's just coming at me and what I have tried to and recalibrate myself to do is to wake up and the first thing I do after I turn off my alarm, I say, Lord, I am yours and you are mine. To begin my day with that connection, even ever so simply, with Jesus. I try to do this with my family as well. Right? I'm the uh, appointed breakfast chef in our house, and so everybody gets to do whatever they want to do upstairs while Dad goes downstairs and makes breakfast. But what I try to do there is just to speak to the Lord to commune with him, to talk to him about the things in my heart, in my mind, the things before me in my day that prepare me to engage with my wife, to engage with my children so that I can be there for them. I can be who I want to be, who the Lord wants me to be. I can be that for them. And so for me, the healthiest way to do that is that I make that connection with Jesus first thing that I take time to read a scripture before I do these things, just to center myself around Jesus. But one of the greatest helps in doing this abiding work, the direction actually comes from Jesus. Listen to what he says. He reminds us of his great love. He says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. What this says to me is that disciples are to think often upon Jesus' great display of love for them, particularly seen in his self-sacrificial death, his life given for us at the cross. Christians, we are to remind ourselves again and again of the death of Jesus for us because that is the greatest display of God's never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever loved. And therefore, we are to rehearse that often. Remind ourselves again and again and again. This is one of the reasons why we started taking communion every Sunday here at Calvary Chapel. Because we want to be reminded again and again regularly every time we meet of the deep, deep love of Jesus displayed for us in the shedding of his blood, in the breaking of his flesh so that we might be restored in our relationship to God. So disciples, we remain in Jesus' love by constantly reminding ourselves and one another of the great love of Jesus displayed in the cross. I love the words to these hymns, that say, that, this hymn, excuse me, that says, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness, 
over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love leading onward, leading homeward to the glorious rest above. Church, I encourage you, find that passage of Scripture. Find that song that faithful saints have written that keeps you in the love of God, that reminds you again and again of the deep, deep love of Jesus. As you do that, you will abide in Jesus because you will be abiding in his love. Now, Jesus says, as we abide in him, we will bear fruit. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, there is this back and forth reciprocal relationship, you will bear much fruit. So the evidence that we are abiding in Jesus is fruit being produced in our lives. Great. What is fruit? Well, fruit, I think, is an image for Jesus-like character being produced in the life of the disciple. Another term we commonly use for this is sanctification or spiritual formation. Now, one of my favorite definitions of sanctification or spiritual formation comes from Robert Mulholland Jr., and he says this, spiritual formation or sanctification is a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. That aligns exactly with Jesus' teaching here in John 15. But notice, it is being a process of being formed in the image of Christ. That's what fruit is in the life of the disciple. That's what sanctification is to look like in the life of the disciple. This is what spiritual formation is, that you and I, through abiding, look more and more, act more and more, speak more and more, take a posture more and more, that looks like Jesus. Have you ever heard people use this phrase? Usually it comes from Christian families. Like, oh yeah, yeah, my, my son, yeah, he's a Christian, but he's not walking right now. I've been pastoring for 17 years now, and that one still is a total head-scratcher to me. And I'm, I'm sorry to say, Scripture has no category for that. Either we are abiding because we are disciples and we're bearing fruit, or we're not. These are the two categories that Scripture gives us. See, if Jesus, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, is dwelling in your life, and you are abiding in Jesus, keeping up the habit of intimate friendship with Him, you're being transformed. Plain and simple, you're being sanctified. It might be slow. It might be frustrating. Yes, usually it is, right? God is raising us from the dead in Christ. He's not trying to make our lives more comfortable and easy. It might feel as though you go two steps forward, three steps back, but little by little, day by day, you are being changed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. Paul says this, remember in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, and we all who with unveiled face, there is no barrier or hindrance, we contemplate the Lord's glory 
we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It is impossible to abide in Jesus and to not be transformed into his image. As we spend time in the presence of the Lord, contemplating his love, his words, his ways, his works, the image of Jesus leaves its imprint on our lives. We are, as we say here at Calvary Chapel, Jesus-formed. Therefore, Jesus' likeness is the infallible mark of true discipleship and abiding in Jesus. That's it. Now, many times we take these verses about the Father taking away dead branches, being about those who were once saved, losing their salvation. The way I read this, rather, is that these verses insist that there is no true discipleship without some sort of fruitfulness. Jesus' likeness, the life of God being lived out in us, some sort of progress to human wholeness in God through Jesus. That's what I think these verses are about. Now listen to what Jesus goes on to say. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit and prove yourselves to be my disciples. So just in case we think that this fruitfulness takes place as we simply let go and let God just be, or that we find the right formula and then it is a sort of beautiful, serene experience where it feels effortless and non-challenging, nothing could be further from the truth. Has anybody in this room ever done any pruning? Yeah. Last year, my, um, our, well, let me start by saying this. Um, the back of our house faces a major street, and we have actually these really beautiful full trees that give us nice coverage. My li- wife likes to have all the windows open in our house, um, and sometimes it's inappropriate, right? So uh, <laughs> we have three young kids that don't know how to wear all their clothes all the time. Um, and so these trees have been like this amazing cover for us, but last year the trees were totally overgrown and during the storms the trees were like whacking against the windows. We have like just the single pane window still. And so our landlord comes out, he cuts back the trees. You guys, it was horrific. I mean, truly, you're looking at this thing like that is the ugliest tree I have ever seen in my life. I don't think he left a piece of green on it. So just think about this metaphor for a minute. My father prunes every branch that bears fruit. No. This is a part of the Christian life that just is very, very unpleasant and frustrating. And yet at the same time, to know that God the Father, he oversees 
the formation of Christ in our lives. It is not just up to us to excavate the deep, dark places of our lives where sin still remains, where brokenness still remains. No, the Father has the correct tool to get down into the deep recesses of our soul. He can go through any locked door, anything that is caved in. He can make his way in there, and he does that through his pruning work so that we might bear more fruit. The Father trims and prunes the branches for greater, greater fruitfulness. I believe it's because the work of sanctification and spiritual formation often feels like a loss a cutting back so often in the midst of our discipleship through the various hardships and trials, we think, this is actually killing me. I actually feel like I'm losing my faith. I'm losing my trust in God. I'm losing my connection to Jesus. I cannot do this. But as we continue to abide, going to Jesus again and again and again, we will find that this was the pruning work of the Father in our lives so that you and I would bear more fruit, that we would be whole humans, more and more like Jesus. Now, I would imagine if we were to take a poll from this room, we've found out that this is not a consistent thing to do here at Calvary Chapel, so I'm not going to try to do the hand thing this morning. I imagine that each of us would affirm that we have grown more like Jesus through seasons of hardship, troubles, and scarcity rather than through seasons of ease and fullness. And though we would never wish it upon anyone else, though we would never want to repeat that experience, we see now that God was doing a good necessary and deeper work in our lives that ease and comfort could have never done. This is the kindness and the goodness and the clear commitment of the Father to you and I. That's what this is. Now, maybe you feel like you're in that moment right now, hanging by a thread, I would encourage you, hold on, cling to Jesus, continue to abide, and it will show in time that this is the work of the Father, pruning you, his beloved branch. These words from Pierre Tillard de Chardin, that's French, if you didn't pick up on that, have brought comfort to me through the various difficult seasons of my life in following Jesus. I remember a friend gave this to me years ago, and I've repeated it to myself again and again. Here it is. Above all else, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We would love to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and it may take a very long time. Yes, a lifetime. 
And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Do not try to force them on as though you could be today. What time? That is to say, grace and circumstances acting on your own goodwill will make of you tomorrow. Only God can say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. Amen, amen, amen. This is how the work of fruitfulness happens. I used to say to our church in Santa Rosa, spiritual formation is a lifelong process. It takes the full spirit of God, the community of God's people, because we are being transformed from people who were dead in sins and trespasses to being those who will one day rule and reign with Christ. Slow down. Give yourself a break. God is at work in you. Finally, Jesus gives us the greatest evidence of abiding. Being with Jesus, abiding, and bearing fruit, becoming like Jesus, will be shown in our love for one another. Jesus goes on to say, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So here it is, the surest way to know whether we are abiding in Jesus and being made more like him will be our obedience to this command to love one another with and out of the same self-sacrificial love that Jesus has loved us. So Jesus, he commands, listen, we're going to get to this, he commands that the same love that he has shown would now flow through our lives to our brothers and sisters and even out into the world around us. We're going to talk about that next week. Our abiding in Jesus is only seen as authentic as we truly and practically love one another. Now, I don't know how you would interpret specifically these verses But to me, it reads as though loving others out of the love of Jesus has this cyclical effect which causes our knowledge and experience of Jesus' love to grow in us, which is amazing. Like, the more we love, the more we experience our belovedness. The more we are experience our belovedness, the more we love. It's like the cyclical thing that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus' love is the fuel that energizes and enables us to love one another. And Jesus wants us to be, this is why he begins with his abiding in me, right? He wants us to be so saturated and nurtured in his love that it flows out of us like vine to branches, touching everyone we meet and interact with. And I know it's been said before, but sometimes we get off course. 
But before we close, let's just remind ourselves that of all the things that Jesus wants his disciples to be marked by, not holiness, not worldwide evangelism, not church planning and church growth, not successful programs, not deep and profound sermons, not knowledge and wisdom, not cultural influence, but love for neighbor is the sure mark of God's love being at work in us. It's the sure evidence that God's love has done its deep, transformative work. That we have been made through this process of sanctification sons and daughters of God. The God who causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The God that causes his sun to shine, irrespective, irregardless of persons. So in closing, the test of our love and deep connectedness to Jesus remains the simple yet profound, dangerous and difficult task. Love one another. Now, I shared this a few weeks ago, and I love it because I think that this is just like the elephant in the room. This comes from G.P. Lewis, from John Stott's commentary on the epistles of John. It says, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. See, we can talk about, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, right? We can talk about this, but then you walk out these doors. You get in the car with your wife. And you know each other's dark side. And you've shown it to each other many, many times. You're going through a difficult season with your children. You're going through a difficult season at work. Just life is happening all around you, right? You're face to face with humans who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, and otherwise totally unattractive. The truth is, is that loving one another is hard. And how do we go about loving people we don't even like? I'm just being the honest one right now. <laughs> According to Jesus, the way forward is profoundly simple. Don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. Obey the command. Discipline yourself. Choose love because love is not a feeling. It is a determination to do right and good by others, to seek the good of those around us. And this is the love that God has shown us to do us good, to bring us into a life of flourishing in human wholeness. So don't bother whether you know, whether you love your neighbor, act as if you did. Obey the love command. 
And as soon as we do, we find one of the greatest secrets to life. When you are behaving as though you love someone, you will presently come to love them. Or as the scriptures say, for where your treasure is, where you invest your time, money, and resources, there you will be, heart and soul. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for their friends. And see, the laying down of our lives, though we think that we could just do it in one great dramatic heroic gesture, more often looks like laying down our lives piece by piece, little by little, in small, seemingly insignificant but important ways. And every day as we do this, The love of God is transforming us. It's taking just a little bit deeper root in our lives because we are practicing what we believe and it is growing in us. The love of God grows our capacity to take in the height, the depth, the width, and the length of the love of God grows. It has this cyclical effect and it works its way out of us to the world around us. My dear friends, abide in Jesus. Stay in deep, intimate friendship with him and love one another. That is the command. Now, as we close our time together this morning, this table is actually one of the ways in which Jesus has offered for us to abide in him. He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me. We said earlier that we abide in him by abiding in his love. Here at this table, we are reminded what Christ has done for us to redeem us from the curse, to make us what God had always intended us to be, flourishing human beings who rule and reign over his creation. That great love was displayed here in the cross. And so I invite you, dear disciple, come this morning. Abide in Jesus by being reminded of his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Come, abide in Jesus by being reminded of his body that was broken for you. But if you are not a disciple, this table is for you as well. Jesus offers you this morning for the first time ever that you can know his deep, deep love that he has for you in his self-sacrificial death and that you from now on can make your identity, your purpose, and fulfillment deeply rooted in him and he will do this transformative work within you, and he will do this transformative work through you in the life of others. So come to the table. Abide in Jesus.